0: My name is Stephen King.
1: The ice is gonna break! Bad Rob, Bad rock! You guys wanna go see a dead
2: body? Well, sometimes, that is better.
1: Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. I am joined, as always, by my Lovely co-host, Mr. Eric Vespi. That's me. Okay. Excellent. Um, Eric, how are you feeling today?
0: Oh, I'm delightful. How are you, Scott?
1: Living the dream. No complaints whatsoever. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just
0: over here nervously tearing strips of paper.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know,
0: that's what I usually do.
1: I'm excited about this episode, despite the fact that it is focused on um, one of, in my opinion... One of the all-time worst Stephen King adaptations. Uh, but this is one of my favorite King novellas. So I am really hyped to talk to uh, talk to our guest today about that. And, um, well, today's... You sound hyped. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a fucking live wire over here. Come on. <laughs> uh, today's guest, by the way, has appeared in some of your favorite movies. Uh, Looper, Knives Out, The Brothers Bloom, Starry Eyes, Dead Girl, and Last but... Certainly not least, Ryan Johnson's Star Wars The Last Jedi, in which he portrayed the doomed fuck machine known as Stomaroni Stark. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Kingcast stage, Mr. Noah Sagan.
2: Thank you very much. I am very happy to be here with you guys and, uh, you know, talk about uh, blowing letters.
1: Yes. We are here to talk about the Lingoliers, that's true. Before we get there, I uh, you know, we need to talk about your history with Stephen King. There's two things I want to talk about here. One is uh, your insane Stephen King Originals collection, which uh, is just disgusting. And, and secondly, well, what, what your Stephen King origin story is. So let's, let's start at the beginning. Like when did you first come to uh, Stephen King's novels?
2: Uh, well, I, you know, I, I think like a lot of people of my age, his movies were more accessible as a little kid to me than his books. Um, just because they were, they were events. They were very, very big events and I was the little brother to two older siblings. So it was, it was much more likely that I would have seen a Stephen King movie before I would have read a Stephen King book. I got into the books. Uh, really religiously when I was I guess I would have been 11 or 12 when the Green Mile started coming out. And um, and it came out over that summer. I'm not sure what year. Was it 94, 95? No, I think um, it was
1: later than that. That must have been like 97 or 98 I think.
0: That's when the movie came out was 99. So I, I think you might be right. I think it might be mid mid 90s.
2: I, uh, I remember getting the first, uh, installment of it and being so excited about it because it felt like what excited me about watching horror movies, which is that there's a lot of them, right? They're sequels. Um, so, uh, uh, th- this idea that, uh, that the story would sort of continue in the serialized way was, you know, and I, listen, I read a lot of comic books and i read other serialized stuff, but there was something about it, I think, because it was so hyped, because it was considered such a, a cultural moment coming from Stephen King. Um, and then in reading it, I, you know, it, it, it was quite different from a lot of the King that at the time I was familiar with, which was the sort of more old school, you know, horror, horror adjacent stuff that I it made me feel like a grown-up. Like it made me feel really excited uh, about 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 sort of being in touch with like adult tones, so to speak, compared to like Firestarter, which, you know, at that point in my life was like on TNT every other weekend, right? So like right. that's what I thought of when I thought of a lot of Stephen King was stuff like that. And then I got really into Green Mile. And then when Green Mile finished at that point i was definitely old enough i was like i said i was 12 13 maybe 14 years old where uh i picked up the dark tower and yes it, it blew my you know that was that was then at that point it was it was off to the races you Do
0: jumped you wanna... into the deep end real quick you went from like green mile and like having not really read much going right into the insanity that is the the Dark well, Tower.
2: Was, it was the serialization. It was this idea that there was like this story that was never going to end, which is what, what I love about, you know, about horror and sci-fi so much is the idea that these stories just sort of like keep continuing. Um, And uh, uh, that is what drew me into. And then once I did tackle the dark tower, everything else seemed easier. Like when I started going then backwards, like into like Bachman, stuff like that, I was like, wait, this is just at that point I was old enough to really kind of acknowledge like, this is just, this is pulp. This is like the world's greatest pulp. This is like popcorn.
1: Can you say anything about any potential involvement you might've had with, a, with the dark tower as a franchise?
2: You know, I can be extremely vague because I okay. don't, uh, you know, I don't like to speak to anybody else, but there there was a period of time Probably close to a decade ago, maybe maybe eight years ago, I don't know, where some very prominent people were going to make the Dark Tower, and um, and and you know, prominent people have been trying to make the Dark Tower for a long, long time. Um, <laughs> and at, at, at this point, this was like I think sort of in the kind of modern, you know, this generation's era, sort of first big swing at it, and I went to go have a meeting with these prominent people about uh about the dark tower they didn't tell me what it was for they didn't tell me what role it was very obvious to me because i was you know i was like a 23 year old piece of shit scumbag you know i was like oh i guess i you know I, I better not brush my teeth for this meeting and um anyway so i i i got to go to a fancy <laughs> office and sit down sit down with some fancy people who who i i very much looked up to and you know those kinds of meetings when you know there really isn't a script yet or or or, or it's a kind of a big job and you know you're going to maybe be working together for you know years with somebody over the course of many movies you know I've had a few of those meetings and they tend to be like you're kicking tires it's like a first date you're like do I even want to hang out with this person uh but of course being the pedantic precocious son of a bitch that I was I walked in and I was like how are you guys going to do the train? Hey, you guys going to do a whole movie on the train? <laughs> what the fuck? What are you going to do about the train? And these, like, you know, very seasoned, very professional, very accomplished filmmakers were like, how would you do the train? Like, they immediately felt, like, got, like, they realized that they got, like, a, like, even though the kid who walked in was, like, wearing a black leather jacket and had a cigarette behind his ear and was doing, like, Fonzie cosplay. Right. Uh, they were like, oh, wait a minute, maybe this nerd, maybe this nerd has an idea for us. Um, so it was a very fun meeting because I actually did get to kind of like geek out on Dark Tower. Um, and then I don't think they even, they, they, th- th- those folks uh, didn't, didn't end up making the movie. But Without uh, saying, without saying
1: who it was, w- did you come away from that meeting feeling like they could have executed it if they wanted to?
2: Yes, yes, of course, because I think, I, I, you know, but that's more of, 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 of my philosophy on good seasoned filmmakers, which is I think that I think that most good filmmakers can keep make can can make a good movie, if that makes any sense. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think, like, sure. you know, the the things that I, I always want to give people the benefit of the doubt, especially when when they've made great stuff before and they have all the resources to make something great. So, yes, yeah, I do.
1: Do you? Well, wanna... you say
0: that, but but Ryan Johnson ruined
1: Star Wars. So. <laughs> uh, uh, we're gonna get Ryan he, eventually.
2: He did. He did. Oh, I'm I'm work. I'm work. I'm working on him. I'm working on him.
1: This he, motherfucker! You know. How he's dare very,
2: he? Uh, he's very busy um, trying to figure out new and ingenious ways to kill me.
1: He's out there <laughs> yes. listening to Dracula on repeat, yep. you know, not taking us seriously. That's fine. That's fine. You know, he'll, he'll come around eventually for just for the record.
0: In case anybody's listening to this cold, uh, we are nothing but last Jedi lovers over here.
1: Yes. Uh, the, big, last, jokes. big last Jedi fans. Uh, but also like part of the bit is that I, I, I gotta keep shit talking Brian. Ryan. Like, no, oh, of know, course but I, I love Brian, you know, of course. Noah, you have brought us today uh, what is one of my favorite Stephen King works, The Langoliers. The movie, the miniseries, I guess, Does it, is it a miniseries if it's like two episodes?
2: It is. It's a, technically, it's a miniseries.
1: Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Correct. It, it is a or a very, very, very long movie. Noah, why did you pick The Langoliers? Let's talk about that.
2: Uh, you know, I picked the Langoliers because, uh, I love it. First of all, I love the novella. Um, mm-hmm. and I love, I love four past midnight. I mean, uh, I think you mentioned earlier that I have a, a pretty extensive collection of King. Oh yes. Let's, uh, let's,
1: and, let's pause and talk about that. You know, you should, you know, brag about this a little bit. Like tell well, the, tell the people know, I, about I, your collection.
2: I can't take uh, all, all the all the credit. Basically, you know, I, I had a, a pretty good collection of King hardbacks, many many of our favorites. You know, I don't know, maybe ten, fifteen books that I had accumulated over the years. And um, at some point, a couple of years ago, my wife, who is also a very very big Stephen King fan, um, was talking to her dad, who lives in a small town in central Pennsylvania. And her dad owns a uh, antique mall, which is basically like he owns a warehouse. And then for, you know, 30 bucks a month or 50 bucks a month or something, he'll rent out a, you know, a little stand in the warehouse that somebody can can sell their antiques at. And that's his business. You know, a lot of real fun stuff comes in and out, especially in central Pennsylvania, where, you know, it's not being picked over every other day of the week. And at some point he sent her a I want to say it's a first edition or an early edition of of the stand and I think it was because she had been reading she had been rereading it and had said something to him about you know she had been rereading it in its hardback version which I owned which of course is I don't know how long it is but it's big and the stand is even bigger and I think he sent it to her as a joke and. Uh, uh, you know, it had popped up in the antique mall and he sent it to her. And uh, 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 and I'm probably getting the story completely wrong. We'd have to ask her. Um, but what ended up happening is her dad ended up trolling this antique mall and starting to send us these early edition hardback kings as he would find them. My collection of whatever it was, 10 or a dozen or 15 books, ballooned. Into what is now, I believe, a, a pretty comprehensive collection of, I don't know, it must be 75 books. That's um, fucking crazy. And various editions, and sometimes we get doubles, and we will, you know, uh, uh, send them, send them off to, you know, people who, who, you know, if we have two of something, we'll, we'll you know, a nice gift, give somebody a nice hardback you know, old school Stephen King, um, kind of thing. But anyway, so uh, yeah, now we have a pretty extensive collection and, uh, and it's very exciting to, uh, you know, consider being able to give those to our kids and and stuff like that.
0: No, that's awesome. I I had a, a a period of time starting in my like late teens is when I like first started like actually, you know, working and getting my own money, You know, but when you're a late teenager or whatever, you're working at a. uh, I was working at a movie theater or a video store, so it's not like I had real money. But what I would do is I would uh, comb thrift stores and thrift stores. I mean, I know a lot of people that do it for clothes and that that kind of stuff. But like, I always went right to the book section, and I'd say the bulk of my King back catalog that I have, the hardcovers I have, are are from just finding. You know. I have like three copies of night shift or whatever, you know, it's a, and and then I would find one that the jackets in great condition, but the book was like, you know, all the corners were, you know, pages were used as bookmarks. So they were like bent in or whatever. And then I would like swap out the good, the good covers for, you know, uh, for a a better, you know, a better quality book. And, and yeah, no, the, the, uh, the one that I still have never come across and, you know, I wouldn't expect to find it at like a goodwill, but um, but I'm always, you know, I, I have the the spine of the uh, first edition of Gunslinger, like, burned into my brain. Just so, like, if I'm just scrolling past a whole bunch of books, that it would jump out to me, right? Uh, still haven't found it, but uh, oddly enough, I I did track down, maybe 15 years ago, I found a, uh, a cover. Somebody just had a cover, a mint condition cover for the first edition of Gunslinger, and I have that. Perfectly. So if I can even find uh, one without the cover, then, you know, then I have a, I have a complete book.
2: Well, I'm not, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I, I'm not a, a a book collector in the sense that like, you know, there's people out there who, who are very aware of the edition and, you know, the the you know, when when and where something was printed and how and um, and and I haven't done that on these King books to any extent, I, I, you know, when, when I, when I look up some of them on the internet uh, which is a great resource for looking things up um, I will sometimes find that like the book club edition is like, you know, they made a billion of them and they're worth 15 bucks, but then the non book club edition, which is exactly the same, but doesn't say book club on it is like, or something like that, you know, and it's like, and, and so, you know, I, 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 one of these days I want to, I want to go through them and like, uh, uh, see what I've, um, see what I've got in terms of collectability. But the thing is, is that even the ones that are like, you know, obviously later editions, the thing that has so been so consistent throughout, I think the printing of these books is that there's always been someone, I, I assume it's Steven is like out there mandating that they look nice they all look beautiful the artwork even on the paperbacks is great um you know it gets a little bit funky i think around 2000 i think there's a couple of them that's like a little bit you know it starts to get a little clip arty. but right. even the you know when i pulled out my uh my four past midnight i was like even the four past midnight just like it gets me there's something about that like the the whatever it is, it's like the clock with the with the schism going through it and it's the, very you know, classy. Yeah. And it's also got like a Dianetics type of vibe, which, you know, the opportunity to ask you guys if you read Dianetics. And if you haven't, would you be interested in reading it <laughs> when this podcast is over?
1: Well, I'm on am I'm I'm three steps on the bridge. <laughs> uh, a few more and I'll be theta clear, but I need to I need to crowdfund about fifty thousand more dollars. Well, it's interesting you picked the Langoliers and it's also, uh, you know, exciting to me because I have always had a soft spot for any sort of story, you know, movie, TV show, novel, what have you, where everyone just disappears. Mm. Um, That's like, that's a major fantasy of mine. I I dream about it all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Can you imagine a world where, you know, you just wake up one day and you're, you know, left to your own devices? you know, in my, in my fantasy version of this, you get to pick like a number of people that will be there with you, you know, but, um, that idea of like a world without people is, uh, super fascinating to me. And it's always, it's always been a, just a hook for me on a story. Eric, do you want to tell us about the, the novella, whatever you got.
0: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I don't have too much other than like, it it was like, personally, it was a big deal for me because this was published, I believe in 1990. And so it was one of the newer books when I was really getting into King. Um, So I remember reading, finding this and reading it when I was, I don't know, 12, 13, maybe, and reading, you know, all the novellas and, and, and uh, the Langoliers in particular hooked me in the very same way that something like the mist did when i read it mm-hmm. um it, it's it's just kind of like pure king you know i love that it's got a twilight zoney setup um if anybody listening to this hasn't read it it you know it, the setup is uh all there's these uh, plane full of people are fl- doing a red eye flight from the west coast to the east coast yeah and um a small group falls asleep during the flight, and then they wake up, and no, everybody else on the flight's gone. And there's just, like, watches and jewelry, and they find, like, a surgical. Dildo. Yeah, yes. And they find, like, surgical, you know, uh, screws and, you know, stuff like that are, are around. And luckily, one of the people that was on the flight was a, uh, a pilot. There's um, a dildo,
2: right? There's a dildo.
0: And a yeah. dildo.
1: He he yeah. is not Is a the implication that the dildo was being worn, like, you know,
2: the, the for practice? Is, the, the inference is that maybe it was, and I don't know what the, the, it may not have been a dildo so much as it may have been a prosthesis of some mm. sort. Um, What's the difference you know,
1: between a dildo and a prosthesis?
2: Well, Scott. Don't uh, act like you I'm don't know. You I'm glad you asked. <laughs> because... It's a
1: fake member. Yes. So like one way or another.
2: Well, I think the idea being that let's not, you know, I don't want to get too far off track here, but uh, you know, I think, I think it's safe to say that uh, I may use my dildo for pleasure, but I use my prosthesis for completion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's our promo.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> well, so
1: you're so what so so are, are we are we going along the lines that the the dildo that's found in the seat early on in the Langoliers was an aesthetic choice?
2: You know, I mean,
1: like uh, it was I, it was complete an ensemble of some sort.
2: It, it, I, yeah, that was what that was how I how I I took it. I took it to to, to mean that this was something that someone who uh, would not otherwise, uh, have a penis who would like one, uh, or needs one, uh, is this is, uh, uh, this is for that because it's sort of, it's, it's positioned, no pun intended alongside, uh, many of the other sort of like incredibly personal, um, anatomical artifacts, you know, like the, the pins from someone's knees, from where, you know, they had an operation or dentures, things like that, which is sort of like there's like this, it's like an escalation, you know, because you say you see the purses and the wallets and then you see the rings and the eyeglasses and the watches and all, you know, it, gets, it kind of ramps up in terms of, of how personal the artifacts get to the point where there is no chance whatsoever that a person would purposefully leave their prosthetic penis or dildo uh, <laughs> uh, on purpose uh, on their uh, airplane seat.
1: Fair, fair. I had not been thinking about it from that angle, but now I do, and and this probably makes more sense.
0: within the the context of four past midnight as a whole anthology collection, the Langoliers is probably the most straightforward. Um, and successful of the four stories, yeah, because uh, the other ones in there are Secret Window, Secret Garden, uh, the Sun Dog, and Library Policeman. Sun Dog is one that I'm actually surprised hasn't been adapted in some, you know, maybe like in a creep show or something like that, because that, that's actually a pretty fun uh, concept. That that's the uh, one where it's uh, like a haunted Polaroid camera, right? Where mm-hmm. yeah, it,
2: I don't it takes like a that photo. One.
0: There's a there's a crazy dog in it that's getting closer and closer
1: with each photo
0: that comes out there's something there
1: like he did this he did this some years later i think it's in uh just after sunset uh the story with the the painting right mm. and it's like a guy in a car that's like on his way to get the guy you know what i'm talking about No, like, I don't remember. He, like he has a short story where it's like a guy buys a painting at like a fucking flea market or something and it's like a guy in a you know a Z Rock I twenty eight fucking you know, I just, rock. but he's like a bad, I rock yes, he's like a bad dude. He has like fangs and what have you. And then you know he keeps looking at the the painting and it it keeps changing to where he's getting closer and closer to this guy's house. And then it ends with like the guy showing up, you know, the man in the the man in the car shows up uh, on his porch, which is kind of like what the sundog is, no.
0: Yeah, a little bit, but you know, I, I don't know. I just, uh, the, of the stories, it was that it was Lingleers and that one that, that grabbed me the most. Um, but you know, the, the only little bit of trivia that I have about four past midnight is that he wrote the stories over a few year period. in uh, I think it was like 88 to 90. And, uh, that was also right when he was getting sober. So that's like in his, hmm. his like, you know, um, that falls close into the like the misery tommy knockers era right. of of king um and so i'm i'm just like kind of curious like at what point you know it, which of those stories were <laughs> was he writing under you know his uh, cocaine fueled haze and which ones you know were his his post I, I i it feels a little bit like um secret window secret garden is very much in the post phase for me because that that feels very yeah. much like um, a dark half it's like just him doing dark half again except instead of you know it being an author's pseudonym it's an author's fictional character you know that represents his, his guilt for plagiarizing a story you know coming to haunt him
1: library p- policeman though very cokey
0: yes. Yeah, no, I, I, on, to be honest, I don't remember too much about that other than that he wrote a very vivid uh, uh, rape scene in it that uh, really uh, <laughs> made me very uncomfortable as like a 13, 14 year old kid reading. Yeah, reading that it's story. not great.
1: Like, uh, my wife and I rewatched uh, The Langoliers the other day for the, mm-hmm. and, um, and I kept telling her, like, as we were watching it, I was like, for the love of God, you've got to read the, the novella. It's so much better than this. Yeah. You know, and so she ended up like buying the uh, four past midnight audiobook. book. And uh, I was sort of like in and out of the room as she was listening to library policeman over a couple of uh-huh. days. And then it got to the scene and she just pieced right the fuck out. Yeah, you know, was like, nope, nope. I'm I'm done with this. Kind of what yeah. happened when we were listening to the uh, the it audio book and we got to the, the infamous sewer uh, scene.
2: Yeah, you could you could that I, I I remember uh I remember sitting next to my wife on a plane when she was rereading that that copy of it and she got there mm. and she shut the book and she was like I read this book, you know, whatever it was 20 years ago and I forgot that that existed. I must have pushed it out of my mind. I must have completely, you know, and she like, she really had like a, what is it? Like Mandela effect type moment where it was like, this is not my reality. Like this doesn't like, this <laughs> doesn't like someone must have fucked with my book.
1: <laughs> which is, Someone which inserted is very, that chapter.
0: Yeah. I was going to say, which is very uh, appropriate for that story. Cause it's all about people who grow up and forget all the, the crazy shit <laughs> that exactly, happened when they were kids.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, And then we have something, then we have something like the Langoliers, which is relatively vanilla. Like, like yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, I mean, there's definitely, there's, there's, it's not without some, some spice, you know, whether it is the, uh, the member aforementioned uh, (laughs) or, uh, you know, the fact that we have, you know, a sort of flawed hero who is uh, haunted by uh, his domestic abuse past. Uh, or, you know, I mean, there's definitely a, 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 bunch of that, but there's also, I mean, there's a you know, spoiler alert, there's uh, do we do, do we care about, no, we assume everybody's seen no. and read and right Yeah. Now.
1: We're not worried but, about I mean, that.
2: Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, little girl who gets stabbed to death. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not, it's not without, uh, without darkness, but generally speaking, it is, uh, uh, it is a rather sort of systematic, acceptable in my mind, level of darkness, it doesn't make you question your uh reality well i mean like Uh, i mentioned
0: earlier it's a very twilight zoney yeah it's really about this the premise and the setup of something unexplainable happened so it's a group of characters just trying to figure out what's happening And it's, it's
1: directly twilight zone because it's you know it's not the same thing but uh odyssey of flight 33 which is like a second season episode of The Twilight Zone it involves like a plane. It goes through a time warp, and they're they're uh, the plane keeps going faster and faster, and they don't know what to do. And eventually, they notice that like on the ground there's like dinosaurs and shit, uh-huh. you know. And um, they realize they've like traveled way back in time, and they're trying to get back. And the the way that episode ends is with them sort of trying to return to. Uh, their previous reality, but you know, it's the twilight zone. So you don't know if they, they made it or not. It's very twilight zone.
2: One of the interesting things that isn't really touched on in the, uh, in the mini that is kind of a great hook in the book is that the Stephen King character who's played by Dean Stockwell, who kind of plays this sort of crotchety, but lovable uh, mystery writer, um, is he, he flat out, he lays it all out in a really articulate way. And he sort of goes like, he goes, no, this is the same thing that happens over the Bermuda triangle. And it's the same thing that accounted for Amelia Earhart, you know, being, uh, 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 disappeared, you know, and he like gives you this whole, he really like lays out and articulates the, almost science behind the rip in space time that they travel through to get them back. And it's a really satisfying thing that doesn't really find its way into the miniseries uh, that I was really uh, uh, surprised about. But, you know, I mean, the miniseries is, uh, you know, listen, I credit is the uh, the first uh, mainstream Stephen King dogma 95 production. Right.
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> in that it's intentionally uh looks like shit
1: yeah <laughs> yeah i was i was shocked to discover when i revisited this thing that it was directed by tom holland the guy that did uh child's mm-hmm. play spider-man yeah yeah you know uh thinner which i think is a really good one fright night
2: the guy made child's play. He made child's play like right before he made Langoliers. It was like not, it was like literally like three years earlier. He had made, he had made child's play.
1: Yes. Yeah, so let's, right? let's yeah. talk about the ways in which the Langoliers fails the, the source of material. And first and foremost, I think it's that, um, it just looks cheap. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to watch now. It looks like a, a Nickelodeon show from like 94, um, just really uh, overlit and uh, just uh, cheap. Like that's the only word that keeps coming to mind. It's it's not a thing you want to revisit in 2020 for sure.
0: Yeah, it's as dated now as as like some of the um, like 50s B monster movies that you would see in reruns were when I was a kid. Um, just where you see all the the bad effects, and you know they didn't have the right money for the effects. All that stuff. I, I think th- honestly, in, when, in my rewatch, the thing that, that stood out to me was like, it, it's such a great, creepy premise of of how you deal with time travel here, right? So this isn't like they're jumping to a point in the future. It's just everything that's not the present is just empty. And, you know, and, and there's something that is a part of nature that essentially comes and gobbles it up. That's the Langoliers, right? Um and that erases the past that they're in. That is such a great creepy premise. And I remember even when I was a kid that the the visualization of the Langoliers was was bad. And like, holy god, like m- looking at it now, it just takes what is this great, creepy buildup and uh just makes it laughable and you know silly and there's nothing threatening about it. They they're like these These, you know, flying meatballs with steel teeth, you know, grinding, you know, (laughs) grinding. They look like the
1: demons from Doom, like the original Doom.
0: At least those had more personality. Like if they had just taken that, you know, that original graphics of the Doom demons, they would at least, you know, in design look better.
2: They look like uh, they look like if you turned like the critters into clip art.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
0: You know what they 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 reminded me of was uh, if you guys I don't know if you guys watch Rick and Morty but they remind me of like the the time cops that that are in Rick and Morty that the, and where they're just like uh, they kind of have an Audrey 2 kind of design hmm. you know I to their heads where they don't Rick have any Morty. eyeballs but they have like you know these funky weird mouths I don't know yeah I mean li- listen there there's lots to not like about the uh, about the show. I think David Morris um, does some decent work, you know, in term he's, he's pretty bland, but at least, you know, he feels like he's there and present, you know, and, and then you, then you have Bronson, you know, Pincho who oh, Pincho
1: <laughs> kills it. Just.
0: I mean, my, my, uh, I'll give him this, that, that dude was swinging for the fences on, you know, he, he right. plays a character named Craig Toomey. Who's, who's the guy that goes from asshole to uh, insane. And, and like about a minute and a half,
1: I Um, love the detail that Craig me this thing about him tearing pages into strips. Right. um, Something about that rings so true to me. You know, like I do weird shit. Like I fiddle with stuff and I'm, you know, I'm very, uh, you know, ADD. You know, Uh, I I usually wear like a band around one wrist and I just fuck with it, you know, while I'm talking to people. I I get that sort of nervous uh, energy. And, and you also her. stab little uh,
0: blind psychic girls
1: only for charity, only for charity. Um, but,
2: but you relate to Craig
1: Toomey is
0: what you're saying. What's, inc- yeah, what's incredible well, I,
2: about? Go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. No, no. I want to hear more about how you relate to Craig Toomey.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I I understand his nervous industry or, or uh, nervous energy, and I under I also understand this idea of him being like you know uh, beholden to. Or corporation or a father figure that he's trying to impress you know I, I get it i think a lot I think a lot of people can get that um he's also a, a fucking <laughs> sociopath you know and he's also you know out of his out of his goddamn mind but um specifically that detail about him tearing pages and and pulling them into strips is there's something about that that has always stuck with me you know yeah, and it's that he would creepy. yeah it's it's such a great example of psychosis. No, like it just, mm-hmm. it's, it's very interesting. I, I like that about him. And I think well, that, I think that Pinchot, like, you know, this movie is not good. You know, there's, there's just no two ways about it, but I think Pincho is maybe the only person that sort of comes out of this thing unscathed. Cause as you said, Eric, he is like swinging for the fences. He is, um, he's giving it all his all he has. It's not, he's not exactly how I pictured Craig Toomey, who I I picture as more of a blocky sort of dude, but I think he nails it. You know, I have no complaints about, about Balky in this.
2: I think one of the the interesting things that, that that I kind of kept coming back to is that all of the pieces between the, the adaptation and the, and the, the novella itself, all the pieces are there. Like it is very sort of like, if there is like a King, potpourri. This is it. It's got like a kid with the shining. It's got like a bad guy who's like haunted by PTSD from his childhood. It's got, you know, there's a lot of wholesome hooks sort of within it, you know, and very much does sort of is is very much about kind of adjusting your sense of reality, kind of like playing on what you think things should be. uh, And in a weird way, that's sort of what the miniseries does because you—it hits all of those points. The miniseries hits all those points in a weird way. The miniseries is like almost verbatim the novella. The dialogue is there. The 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 story beats are there, but it's like someone took away the charisma. You know what I mean? Like it's like there, there is no
0: fizz in the in the soft drink
2: or the beer. Right, exactly. That's exactly it. Is it? yeah? It's like when 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 he spits out the sandwich, and he's like, the sandwich isn't spoiled. It just is. It has no flavor. It has no no substance to it. Um, and you know, I I I can't. I mean, being a guy who you know makes stuff like you know TV shows and and movies, and I you know I, I work on that stuff. The only thing I can think of is that with you know a great filmmaker. And uh, uh, generally, I mean, a cast of like, you know, very well-known people, David Morse, Dean Stockwell and, you know, and Bronson these people who, you know, even at the time were like, you know, they they worked a lot and they were well-known. I can only sort of throw it in the pile of up until very recently, things that were made for television had a much lower threshold of what was expected from them compared to something that was supposed to be in a theater. And I think that there was a certain, you know, there was a certain tone that was expected to play on 13 inch television sets with rabbit ears. That is completely separate from what we now think of when we think of sitting in front of like our really nice TVs and watching like Breaking Bad and Breaking Bad is as good as any movie you'll ever see.
1: Imagine a prestige mini series now based on the langoliers, it would oh, be it, fucking awesome
0: yeah if if h b o did did like took the outsider team or whatever and then made this like yeah it it would it is ripe for somebody to to do that i mean i i think i know that h b o had uh made a lot of headway um into getting people to look at t v differently but it, for me it wasn't until lost like lost was the first time that I remember seeing like a network thing going, Oh, that's, that's cinema quality right there. You know, it's like, to me, I I remember uh, really thinking that that, that was the, when the guard change happened, when, you know, people from that point on would expect, you know, a higher level of of quality from a, a a network thing.
1: Uh, A funny thing for me just, and you know, this is the only time I'll get to tell this particular story on this show. But a few years ago when, uh the Dark Tower came out. Sony flew some of us up to uh New York and then Bangor to you know do like a Stephen King tour and uh we met King and then watched a well, we watched a screening of the Dark Tower movie with him, uh, which was very awkward. But when you get to the Bangor airport, like they have pictures up all over the fucking place uh of like news clippings from when they filmed the Langoliers at that airport. Yeah. So it was extremely funny to me <laughs> that I got up this airplane and walked into this building and there's like pictures of Balky all over the place. You know,
2: uh,
1: <laughs> like I grew up in the I grew up in the, you know, late 80s early 90s and so like uh Bronson Pinchot's kind of an icon to me, which is crazy. <laughs> you know, cuz yeah. Bronson Pinchot hasn't really been terribly active since in terms of creating other iconic roles, but like this was sort of like you know, if I had landed at a, a podunk airport in the middle of nowhere, and they had pictures of Steve Urkel up all over the place, you're like, <laughs> "Wow, right. really?" Like, and it was, it was, it was pretty cool. You know, it's and Listen, it's cool that If you land your
2: plane on my block, you will see my shrine to not Steve Urkel, but Stefan Urkel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so Stefan Urkel's gotten multiple mentions on this podcast, by the way. That's true, That's I think weird. that. I think some somebody when we were talking about Stephen King versus Richard Bachman, <laughs> that, <laughs> that that was brought up as, as yeah. Bachman as the Stefan Arkel. Stefan is yeah King.
1: definitely the Bachman of that relationship. <laughs> my
0: my uh, I haven't actually i i visited Bangor, um, but I drove up from Boston uh, when I did it and. Uh, uh, my airport story, the only closest I got to the airport was um, I spent a couple of days there and I decided I wanted to go see a movie, a horror movie. And uh, um, this was right before it came out and they were doing that, uh, watched the first five minutes before the Con the whatever the Conjuring was that um, yeah. or the Annabelle, the Annabelle movie that Sandberg did. It's like that, that was out the, and, uh, and I hadn't seen it. And, and I had heard that they'd put like the first five minutes of it there. And I'm like, Hey, look at me. I'm a, I'm going to go to, I'm in Bangor. I'm going to see some Stephen King stuff on the big screen. How cool is that? And the only uh, place showing it was this little teeny tiny theater right next to the airport. And, and, uh, and I went there, it was like after dark and, and, i swear to god it, re- it reminded me so much of being a kid going to see a movie because it was it, it this might as well have been an office complex right there was one person working there it was like some 18 year old kid who was selling tickets and then he would walk over behind the 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 concession stand and then you know give me popcorn <laughs> and i swear to god he must have been the one like You know, turning on the projector and everything, right? Too, and I went into the room and it was like not stadium seating; it was just like a flat row of of seats, you know, in a shoebox theater. Holy shit! Um, And it was, it took me back, and and that whole that whole trip was bizarre because, you know, no, I don't know if you've ever made the pilgrimage over there, but you know, as somebody who grew up reading Stephen King, just walking around Bangor, you know, even without knowing. Like this is the corner that, you know, Georgie gets killed in, you know, in the book or whatever. Like you get the feeling that you've been there before and Mm. you get this like weird wave of, of childhood nostalgia. And that was like double that for me. So that that was as close as, as I got to uh, the airport, but you know, I got a a nice double dose of, of King nostalgia from
1: it. The most baller part of that uh, tour was that like, as we were driving around Bangor, they would be like, um, Okay, so if you look out your window to the left, uh, that's a public library that was uh, basically a pile of rubble. And then Stephen King and his wife came in and donated thirteen million, and now it looks like that, and it looks like a fucking brand new mall. And then you go like up two more blocks, and they're like, and this is the Little League stadium that Stephen King and his wife built. It was like I thought it was I thought it was so badass that King and his wife are like give so much to that community and don't make a big deal about it. You know, yeah. like I had never heard this shit. I had no idea that was the case, but here it is. Here's, here's, you know, you can look at it with your own eyeballs and it's, it's impressive stuff. Um,
2: and yet, and yet they could not give Tom Holland a <laughs> tripod. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, but they
0: did bring the <laughs> tens of hundreds of dollars that they spent uh, on the movie into Bangor to shoot at the airport. So,
1: what network was this on? I was it ABC. Was aired, on, there you it go. Was
2: aired on it was aired on ABC, and the guy who produced it, Rubenstein, uh, who owned a company called Laurel, did Creep Show, and did uh, Pet Cemetery, and did the Stand miniseries. And also uh, produced uh, Romero films. Um, And I I don't know. I mean, I I guess my point is that I I don't know how you end up with the Langoliers if, you know, that is not your upper threshold for acceptability. Do you know what I mean? Like, 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 like I remember that stand um, miniseries was not was not great but it's not anything close to what happened with the Langoliers. And obviously Pet Cemetery is a very well made movie um, and looks good. You know, there's parts of it that look really good. It's an interesting question for me, because like I said, I feel like on so many levels, the miniseries does hit the same (laughs) notes as the, as the book. You know, it really is like a very true it's true to the source material. It just doesn't look very good. And it's sort of disappointed with the acting. And you know what I mean? It's like,
1: it's very faithful, you know, the, the faithful faithfulness to the source material is definitely not the problem.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's just the difference of expectation. This is what TV movies and, you know, miniseries look like, you know, then. And I, I, I remember when, I mean, I I must have watched this with my family when it came out because we were all Stephen King fans. Um, But I I don't remember this being the event, but I remember it and the stand being the like all over TV guide, the covers
1: Mm -hmm. and like there
0: were commercials. They were big events. And when people watched it, they got like that was what a a miniseries looked like. You know, that's just what it was. and, And nobody really thought twice about it. You know, I think that it's just now, you know, things have moved moved on and and people just don't uh, will accept that level of of uh, production value.
1: Well, no, if you were um, if you were going to star in a new production of the Langoliers and you could pick your director, who would you want helming this thing? I would do it. OK, well, uh, let's <laughs> assume it's not you. <laughs> like somebody um, else, like y- you get your pick of whoever's helming this thing.
2: Oh boy. Well, you know, I think on one end, I think it would be, uh, really interesting to see, like, Shane Carruth presents The Langoliers, uh, because I, um, I just think that uh, it would be scientifically very accurate, uh, coming from the only guy who has made an actually scientifically accurate, uh, time travel movie already. Um, Uh, but, uh, so yeah, I would like, I would like Shane, let me see i don't know man who who is the would it be a miniseries or would it be a movie would it be a, a would we would we try to do it in two hours it could be whatever you want try to break it
1: up um i think you could right. do this in two and a half I, I think you could
0: yeah i don't think you sacrifice too much making this a, a feature length
1: zemeckis i think could do this you know i would i would want somebody that is bringing like uh the technical know-how to it and, you know, able to handle all the effects, but also someone who understands heart, you know? So that's how I would sort of, that's what I would sort of be uh, aiming for. I think,
2: you know, I mean, Nicole Hollis center does the Langoliers is kind of my jam, but (laughs) uh, yeah, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, who's, who is out there, you know, who is not, who's, who's maybe closer to our age, you know, somebody who maybe grew up with King didn't didn't acquire King, but but has always been there with him. You know, I almost think like you know, do you think about like a like a Josh Trank or you know who who got to be
1: got to be someone that has like in my Jeff mind Nichols? So, Jeff Nichols, Jeff yeah. Nichols maybe. Jeff Nichols would be great.
2: Jeff Nichols, Nichols would be
1: great. great. Yeah. Would
0: be would yeah. be great. And you do that, you guaranteed to have
2: uh, you get Mike Shannon, Mike Shannon as, Michael as Shannon, as yeah. You got Mike Shannon yeah. to me. Wow. See, oh my go. God.
0: That that would be the scariest fucking shit. Sh- I don't, he'd be too scary in that role. Like, I think that, uh, y- you wouldn't believe that he would only just kill like three people on that
1: plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he can definitely rip up some magazine pages. That might
0: Michael- for sure.
2: Yeah. I think we yeah, just got Mike- it. I think Mike, I think, I think Jeff Nichols doing the Langoliers is, uh, is the new hope.
1: All right, well let's make it happen. Yeah. Let's get on the phone with that guy.
0: I, I did want to bring up, like, there is a a great character actor in the in the show that isn't talked about too much, but it's somebody that that I love. His name's uh, Frankie Faison. Oh yeah, um, yeah. He plays Don Gaffney, but he, he you know he is just the the likable dude. But he he he's somebody. He's a, that guy. He's a great character actor. He was the guy that was like um, overseeing Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. He was like the the guy that worked his yeah, that yeah. ward. He, he wasn't the asshole boss that, that you know, the, uh, yeah, the order ran the asylum. Yeah. But he was like the orderly. He was the guy that was like, you know, insinuated that, you know, he was kind of the only other person that Hannibal like liked there, you know,
1: right. Because right.
0: You know, he's just this kind dude. And that's what this guy would like radiate. So he was perfect for this role of this dude who's just like, like, you know, I'm the nice guy. I think in the miniseries, he's the you know, I, I don't remember if this is in the novella, but his character is is going to visit his grandson for
1: the first time. He's like, he's that guy. Yeah. He's great in it. He's, he's great yeah. in everything that guy.
0: And, you know, just being the quantum leap kid too, is also really cool seeing Dean Stockwell. I, I don't know if he particularly is great in, in the movie, but like you're in the mini series, but he's, you know, he's got, he's, he's got doing a doing what fun he can party. with
1: the material, yeah. you know, he's giving it his all.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's uh, got a tough role because he's the guy that has to, pull the, pull the, uh, uh, the the crazy sci-fi what ifs out of thin air and make it sound like he's just coming, coming up with the exact right thing that's happening.
2: Yeah. He's sort of the ex he's like exposition grandpa, um, in the, in the, in the movie, uh, uh, in the, in the video series. But you also, I mean, again, you know, just, you know, not the completely, you know, continue to hammer uh home the limitations of this thing but it's also like you really get the impression that like everybody had one take of everything that they had to do and like that's it like like dean it's it's hour 17 of production today and you have to (laughs) give this two-page speech about the rip in the space-time continuum and we have 34 seconds to get it go and it was just like you know, and it's, and, and, uh, and uh, I actually do think it is a credit to you know to Dean and 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 Frankie and 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 David Morse and Bronson that like I I'm sure that they didn't shoot this over like 70 days. I'm sure they shot it over like a handful of weeks. And you know these these people all very much sort of like showed up and and at like I said at the very least kind of maintained what was on the page that King wrote and obviously that, that Holland transcribed into a screenplay.
1: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, and there, there is something there too. also looking at, you know, this is like looking at the, the shining miniseries compared to the Kubrick one, you know, it's, it's the same thing where there's one that's literally the entire book, you know, without any authorial voice to translate it. Right. And it just doesn't work, you know. You sometimes you need to have, yeah. You know, there there is an adaptation process for a reason, and uh, so when Jeff Nichols does his, uh, he can have a little room to to play around with structure if he wants, and you know, fix things that you know might not work as a direct uh, line from the novella to the to the movie. Although
2: I got to say that there is an argument, you know, just to be a devil's advocate for a minute, I do think that there's an argument to be made, especially coming from Tom. Holland who you know at least between fright night and and, and, and child's play is like squarely understands pulp genre right like, right this is a guy who like you know there is should be no doubt in our minds that Tom Holland understands the tongue-in-cheek nature of uh, of, of, of horror and um, and 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 knows how to put a finger on it and I think that you could argue that there's a you know, there's a very sincere sort of Amblin-esque Jeff Nichols version of it, but I kind of think that that, given every resource, the Tom Holland version, the version that was actually made, is like a really fun, pulpy Twilight Zone version, you know, is a version that does have a tongue-in-cheek. And, you know, and I, I almost do wonder if you sort of like, if, if we readjust our perspectives in watching the miniseries, if we end up sort of saying, well, you know what, yeah, the the special effects and the sort of early CGI stuff is sort of cheesy, but like, what if it's supposed to be cheesy? What if it's supposed to be like a, a fifties B movie? You know what I mean? Like if we readjust our, our expectations and our perspective on it, does it hold up better?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) It just does not. It's just bad. Yeah. Yeah. We
0: appreciate the devil's advocate thing here, but I, I think they were absolutely going for a real legit, (laughs) <laughs> you know, straightforward yeah. thing, I, wh- whether or not, you know, there's, there's some Z grade entertainment you can get from it. You know, that, that isn't an, an argument that, that, uh, uh, that I can understand, but I, the problem is, is that maybe it's just from the production value standpoint, but you know, I mentioned an authorial voice, like anybody could have made this, you know, it, the reason why it's surprising that Tom Holland did it at the time he did it is because it, it the movie doesn't have a personality, you know, the miniseries, right. It's just there it's flat it it feels like you know a daytime soap almost right it's, it's 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 a very bland you know movie that that has a lot of really great actors and a lot of really great you know sci-fi stuff to to play with but you know despite all that it just happens to be you know dull and and tasteless
1: yeah i think that's all we got on on langoliers uh <laughs> um Noah. I want to ask you, uh, Ryan is doing, uh, knives out two right now or whatever the sequel to, to, to this thing ends up being knives in knives in, um,
2: do
1: you have, do you have any indication if, if somehow you will be resurrected for the second part of this?
2: I mean, you act like I died in the, in the first one. Uh, he usually does manage. He usually does kill me off, but, uh,
1: Well, that's fair, Uh, but also like there would be no reason for you to be involved in another murder mystery. You know, I don't
2: know know why I'm paying you the ten percent that I'm paying you as my agent.
1: (laughs) 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 Do you have any input on on the Knives Out sequel? Um, Uh, Do you you think you'll be involved?
2: He is very, very diligently working to bring you. The kind of content that you crave and deserve, um, mm-hmm. and um, and that uh, I have I have no doubt that uh, it will appear uh, shortly. Um, but uh, as far as you know, listen. I mean,
0: <laughs> he's been. <laughs> it, this is, it's fun. It, it's fun. It, an it, interesting
1: minefield yeah, that it, you're it, that you're having to yeah, walk. Yeah, it's right fun now. to listen to you squirm on this hook.
2: He, listen, Ryan has been making movies for uh, about 15 years, a little bit more than that. And mm-hmm. I have been uh, working for him for that period of time. And I think it is very safe to say that his success has been entirely due to the fact that I have continued <laughs> to work with him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So yes. what it really comes down to is it, 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 it's his choice. You know, so there's a lot of people out there who are <laughs> afraid of success. You know what I mean? There's a lot of people out there who don't understand right. that <laughs> they uh, deserve to be loved, that they deserve to be recognized, that their talent is worthwhile. And, you know, um, I just I want Ryan to succeed, is my point. Yeah, we all do. You know, we're rooting for him.
1: He had that billion-dollar failure, you know, of uh, The Last Jedi. And then, you know, an original IP that generated hundreds of millions of dollars worldwide. And and, and I imagine that he's um, still licking his wounds over that, you know. But I think he can come back from all of this. And and I hope that you're involved when he does. Well, I'm
2: here for, you know, I guess my point is that I'm here for him. And I also don't want him... (laughs) I don't want him to forget that uh, his success is a gift from me. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. There's your headline.
2: <laughs>
0: well, I mean, no matter what, we, we know that that you'll be for sure in the lead role of uh, Nick Hopewell in the Jeff Nichols uh, Langoliers reboot that's going to happen. Yeah, no, I yeah, want to see Noah
1: yeah. do to me, dude.
2: I'm working on my uh well I've been working but I've been working for years on my British accent.
0: Yeah, that that's something that we didn't touch upon just how fucking bonkers crazy, you know, that one of the few people who survives on this airplane happens to be a, a a a British assassin, which is fucking bonkers. But that I think that's the perfect one. That's the role you were born to play.
1: Yes.
2: That's what that's what I'm saying is I I think um, you know, uh listen, you know, I I spent a lot of time with a certain um british actor who has some experience playing uh spies um Mm -hmm. and you know really i think that i learned enough from him to be able to improve on what he does and that's what i'm going to put into my nick hopewell
0: and uh you know barring that then obviously you would be playing the psychic blind girl
2: well, that's just, that's, that's, you know, I don't do a lot of cosplay, but when I go out, I do tend to cosplay as Dinah from the Langoliers. Yes,
0: <laughs> You just scream the word Craig over and over again.
2: Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Get those nice round, those round glasses that she wears. <laughs> well,
1: thank you very much for joining us today. I know this was, well, this was a Langoliers episode and we, and we thank you for that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm happy to be here with you guys, and uh, I, I I miss you both, and I I can't wait to see you in person soon. I hope. Yeah. Yep. Same Hopefully,
0: man. very soon. And that was our Langoliers episode. Many thanks to Noah Segan. You pronounced it Sagan uh, in there. Have I been pronouncing his name wrong this whole time? Fuck. You might be right. I think it's Segan. We never really asked him. If no only Sagan. we had a. I mean, had a, a platform to uh, ask him how to pronounce his name.
1: You and I both know Noah, and we also know a lot of other people that know Noah. Yes. And I am certain that I have said Noah's name out loud in full in front of those people. And no one has ever corrected me. So if I'm saying it wrong, mm-hmm. then maybe no one knows. Just saying if, it, if he wanted to pronounce
0: Sagan, he'd throw an A in there instead of an E. That's all I'm saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. Noah, get your fucking house in order, man. It's just, we, we can't be sorting through all this stuff like after every episode. It's a lot. <laughs> We're very busy.
0: Speaking of being busy, let's uh, tell the people what we have in store for them in the next week, uh, starting with this Friday for our Patreon subscribers.
1: Uh, we are doing another Dark Tower related episode that is specifically about the artwork in all of the Dark Tower books, as well as the comic books. And we're sort of going through and talking about the artists and their different styles, and we are also ranking the art in all the Dark Tower books and the comics. Our special guest uh, for this episode is a colleague of ours, Mr. Germain Lussier. He's a bit of an art expert, certainly a pop art expert. Bespi and I both know Germain in the... uh, Poster collecting world and the original artwork collecting world—we're all kind of nerdy like that. So you know, he felt like a a good person to bring on for for this particular subject. And before we move on, I I do want to point out that. Right before we were going to record this episode, I mentioned on the KingCast Twitter feed that we were recording a new Dark Tower bonus episode and that if one of our followers could guess the hyper specific subject matter of this episode, we would allow them to pick the title for the next KingCast commentary on the KingCast Patreon. And sure enough, somebody guessed it. (laughs) Um, We will be reaching out to that person via the Twitter feed today. Uh, so sit tight, we'll get in touch with you, and you're gonna be picking our next commentary track. Please go easy on us. We've watched yes, a lot of' yeah, bullshit, be kind
0: really. yeah if you're gonna, if you're gonna if you're gonna pick something really terrible, make it short please
1: what a, what would be like your worst case scenario?
0: Oh, my Lord. Um, well, you specified no uh, miniseries. No So mini-series. That, that takes off the most worst case. Honestly, it would be something super serious that I don't know that I could add anything to. So if they pick, like, Carrie or The Shining, like, it would just be us kind of sitting around talking about something that's been picked apart, you know, ad nauseum. That, that to me, would give me more anxiety than, like, The Mangler or some, some random, you know, crappy oh, adaptation. Yeah,
1: I could do The Mangler in my sleep. Come on. but (laughs) Yeah, but I I also agree with you. Um, We do want to do some more serious commentaries, but it just hasn't shaken out that way yet. And um, if this person does pick something really serious, we're going to have to uh, find a guest who is way more intelligent than we are to uh, really bring the thunder to that track. But we have faced bigger challenges than that. We can do that. (laughs) Tell the listeners at home what's happening next week, Eric. So, for the main show, the
0: next title we are covering is a big one, especially for for me. This was my first Stephen King book that I ever read, uh, Cujo. We are going into mm-hmm. the world of Cujo, and we have a great guest. This is the first guest that we had that uh, was bragging about being on the show very publicly. <laughs> <laughs> he blew up his own spot, like, almost instantly. He, as soon as did. we locked
1: in the record date, it was it was on.
0: Which is um, nice. Uh, yeah. He, he is an actor. Uh, he was a child star and still continues to turn in interesting work today, so we can say that much. That's right. You guessed It,
1: it is Scott Bayo coming to the KingCast. Yeah, he, he wanted to
0: time this for the election.
1: <laughs> he has some very yeah.
0: troubling thoughts about what Cujo represents, <laughs>
1: um, and that's like the first of a, a two-part thing, actually, because next week is Cujo week. We have um, the the main episode that'll be on the main feed on on Wednesday with that guest, and then what do you want to tell them about what's happening on Friday?
0: Yeah, so the way that our schedule works, if you haven't figured it out by now, is the main show goes up on Wednesday, and then our Patreon bonus episodes go up Friday. We kind of lucked into getting a very special guest for Cujo. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so we wanted to pair pair that with our Cujo episode. So we have we have a very awesome interview style bonus episode popping up next Friday on our Patreon as well. If you want to be there when it goes live, make sure to sign up at
1: patreon.com slash the King cast. It's just us interviewing the dog from Cujo for 90 minutes. Uh, we didn't get much out of him. But a uh, very friendly guy.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's really weird because in in dog years, I think he's 472 years old. You couldn't <sighs> talk. Maybe that's why he
1: was so quiet. I don't know. Anywho, I think that, uh, that about catches us up.
0: Yep. So that's where the uh, immediate world of the King cast is going. If you want to follow along, go ahead and pick up Cujo. Give it a read. It's a good one. Or revisit the movie at the very least. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Yeah, uh, we were. Yes. And uh, yeah, both episodes are bangers, as they say. All right. We'll see you next week for
1: that. See y'all later.